Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite I'll be reading the state took these properties to expand I-70. Now they're empty lots and the community wants them back by Rebecca Tauber. And climate advocates want Denver to ban natural gas in new buildings, but it won't happen just yet by Rebecca Tauber and Sam Brosh. From Westward, I'll be reading Coloradan helps create clown coin, a new meme cryptocurrency by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. And Denver opens Coliseum as warming center for homeless, also by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. The state took these properties to expand I-70. Now they're empty lots and the community wants them back, by Rebecca Tauber. In 2016, as Colorado began work on a contentious plan to widen I-70, the state relocated El Rio Swansea residents whose homes and businesses stood in the way. Colorado Department of Transportation, CDOT, acquired 74 properties through eminent domain as part of the controversial $1.2 billion project that lowered the highway, demolished the viaduct dividing the neighborhood, and built a park in its place. CDOT paid for owners and renters to move into new housing and for some renters to become owners through relocation assistance. But some residents affected at the time struggled to find housing that matched their needs and met federal requirements in a competitive market. Others had to leave the neighborhood they had called home for years. Now, a few of those properties taken from residents and business owners sit empty as dirt lots, ultimately not part of the permanent project. With construction having wrapped in November, the community wants the plots back to build housing on them. It's unclear why the state took property from residents that would ultimately sit empty. The project did not unnecessarily purchase homes or businesses, said CDOT spokesperson Stacia Sellers. If it was determined that additional property was needed, we would evaluate how much of the property was going to be impacted. If the impacts to the property were significant and altered the property's functionality, we would purchase the entire property. The remnant parcels are primarily very small slivers of land. CDOT did not provide answers about the use of specific parcels during the project, and the construction company, Kiwit, did not respond to requests for comment. CDOT Executive Director Shoshona Liu said that having leftover property is normal for a construction project of this size, as some land can be temporarily used for things like office space that is removed upon completion of a project. But the empty lots aren't all tiny slivers of land, and with the project finished, community members want what was there before, housing. Longtime residents in El Rio Swansea have seen rising property values over the years and worry about ongoing gentrification, especially now that a large community park sits where a crumbling viaduct used to be. Looking at the empty lots, community advocates see an opportunity to build housing. Some of the parcels sit in more industrial areas ill-suited for community development, but a few lie at the end of residential blocks lined with single-family homes and are big enough for new buildings. 
Before the construction, the properties at the end of the block facing I-70 were adjacent to the towering viaduct, with the highway rumbling overhead. Today, the empty lots are still next to I-70, but it's a lot quieter with the highway lowered. State regulations require CDOT to get the property appraised and sell it at market value. The prices of leftover lots will almost certainly be higher than what the state originally paid residents, as property values have risen and the I-70 project itself decreased the prominence of the highway and brought a new park. It's kind of ironic that the project itself has actually raised the value, said Nola Miguel, co-director of the community group GES Coalition. With GES Coalition, Miguel has been applying for state and federal funds to purchase plots for a land trust for the community. Councilwoman Candy Sudabaka represents El Rio Swansea and organized against the project as an activist before her election to council. She sees the effort to regain the land as connected to indigenous land back movements, as well as efforts across the country to repair harm caused by highway development that separated low-income, non-white neighborhoods like hers in the 1960s. It's infuriating to walk through my community and see that there are remnant parcels that were once neighbors, she said, but I do think that the best solution is just to return the land to the community. CDOT says they expect to have appraisals sometime in 2023. In the meantime, Miguel is applying for $2 million for three properties. 4631 Josephine Street, 4542 Fillmore Street, and 4625 Milwaukee Street. Miguel said her figure might be high, but that she'd rather overestimate than come up short. Property records show that CDOT paid 285000 for 4625 Milwaukee Street in 2018, but it's unclear how much the state paid for the other two properties. Miguel said she can't help but wish that any potential leftover land was included in negotiations about the project to begin with. When CDOT was first developing the project, activists pushed back about air quality and noise concerns and ended up winning a $500,000 settlement with additional promises for health studies and the park. I think there's definitely that feeling of these are the community's parcels. There shouldn't be this question of how we pay for them. State regulations say that local municipalities are given the first opportunity to purchase leftover land, but Miguel said CDOT has expressed a willingness to work with the community. They have been openly showing us what the parcels are and trying to figure out how we could get them into the land trust, she said. I think there's an agreed-upon desire to do so. Sudabaka said the city, which has the chance to purchase land first, also wants to work with GES Coalition. The city is well aware of the community's expectation of CDOT, and I believe they're going to honor that commitment, Sudabaka said. Now the question remains how to pay for it. GES Coalition made it to the final round for a federal funding program, but ultimately did not get the money. Miguel is worried, but appraisals won't happen until sometime in 2023. In the meantime, she's applying for state funding with the hope that something will come through. Climate advocates want Denver to ban natural gas in new buildings, but it won't happen just yet, by Rebecca Tauber and Sam Brosh. Denver won't become the latest community to ban natural gas in new residential buildings just yet. Councilman Jolin Clark proposed a ban to the city's upcoming building code, but city council held off on adding the amendment, citing a need for more information before moving forward. On Tuesday, 
a city council subcommittee voted to advance the construction standards to a vote before the full council without the prohibition in place. But council can amend building codes any time within their three-year lifespan. So Clark suggested additional meetings in the next few months to consider adding the amendment after the code passes. Many council members spoke in support of the ban, but said they wanted additional information, such as a more detailed phase-in plan and testimony from experts in cities that have implemented similar policies. Natural gas bans have become a flashpoint in local climate politics since 2019, when Berkeley, California voted to exclude them from all future construction. San Francisco followed with its own ban the next year. New York City followed in 2021, and New York Governor Kathy Hochul has promised to enact a statewide prohibition by 2027. In August, Crested Butte became the first municipality in Colorado to make the switch, which will go into effect in January. All the action in progressive communities has inspired a Republican backlash. 21 GOP-led states have adopted so-called preemption laws to stop local governments from taking similar action. Climate activists in Denver see the ban as one of the biggest steps the city could take to fight climate change. Many community members spoke in favor of the gas ban at the committee meeting Tuesday. We don't want anyone stuck in homes burning polluted gas, said Nikki Day, a member of Black Parents United Foundation. We want our new homes in Denver to be free of health hazards, unsustainable costs, and climate impacts of burning gas. Proponents of the amendment cited studies that show all electric homes can be cheaper to build and save residents money on utility bills, especially with energy bills so high right now. Electric homes save people money, said Ann Kramer at the committee meeting. I know this from personal experience seeing my utility bills go down, even while I had my AC blasting during 100-degree days. Christine Brinker, Senior Buildings Policy Manager with Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, has been advocating for the ban and is happy with the outcome at City Council. There's a lot she likes in the existing building code update, like energy requirements for commercial and multifamily buildings, and has hope that a ban can take shape in the next few months. I thought it was a solid base hit, she said. It's important for the climate, for health, for safety, and for ongoing affordability of our housing stock in Colorado. We, w- we know that every new fossil fuel connection locks us into fossil fuel for decades, or it burdens future homeowners with literally thousands of dollars of extra costs to convert over to electric in the future. The following articles are from Westward. Coloradan helps create clown coin. A New Meme Cryptocurrency by Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh Amid the current bear market in the crypto world, one Coloradan still sees value in the field and has co-created a new cryptocurrency, ClownCoin. We found that people loved making clown content. Clowns are very memeable, says Dave Matarachi, a co-founder of ClownCoin. There's unlimited clown content in the world whether that be the Joker or It or Ronald McDonald. We incorporate the fun aspect. Clowns have been known to bring joy and laughter. And that's what we want to bring, is joy and laughter and a fun time to investing. Matarachi, who is based in Pueblo and works as a first responder, 
launched the meme coin back in May together with one other Coloradan and a handful of other individuals from around the U.S. Those not closely following crypto might be wondering, what the hell is a meme coin? A meme coin is a cryptocurrency term for popular currencies, sometimes depicted with comical or animated memes, that are supported by enthusiastic online traders and followers. While meme coins may be fun, they are also highly risky investments and may hold little or no intrinsic value, according to Investopedia. Dogecoin, Shiba Inu, and other currencies that may offer more entertainment than usability fall into this category. When buying or trading meme coins, it's critical to understand the risks to help you avoid unexpected volatility and losses. In other words, people should not invest large amounts of money that they can't afford to lose in meme coins. While cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ether have significant dollar values and can be used to make purchases and even pay state taxes in Colorado, meme coins are less about funding your retirement and more about viral content and community. Or, as Matarochi puts it, a meme coin technically is a coin without a utility, some sort of software or whatever a utility coin would be. Meme coins are more community-based, more social media-based. The utility is more the community and what content you can create. Clowncoin has been reaching out to local Colorado businesses and agencies that want to do collaborations and also plans to reach out to influencers and celebrities to do some charity stuff, according to Matarachi. So far, Clowncoin has posted original music videos to its YouTube channel that feature rap music videos about the cryptocurrency. I would really love for it to be a big Colorado thing. We really want it to be a people-run project. We want those who want to join the community and invest. We want them to be able to help out as much as they want to, Matarochi says. Aside from Dogecoin and Shibu Inu, which have Shibu Inu dogs as their memes, there are also meme coins such as Pitbull, Pepecoin, and Catcoin. We're kind of actually built off of Catcoin. The majority of our core team came from Catcoin. We were actually pretty unhappy with the way their team was running the project, says Matarochi. Once we launched Clowncoin, we renounced our ownership to the community itself. Basically, we encourage our community members and our investors to help out and engage with the community, create original content for the cryptocurrency, and we're looking to build this into a big thing. We want to have a safe, fun investment for people that are kind of weary on the side of cryptocurrency because it can be a risky world to get into. Although Clowncoin, which has about 400 investors, has a global reach with people from Italy, the Czech Republic, and Australia getting in on the meme coin's action, the fact that two of its founders are from Colorado is no surprise. The Centennial State has become a hub for Web3 and cryptocurrency technology, thanks to a robust tech scene along the Front Range and an annual crypto conference called ETH Denver. Additionally, Governor Jared Polis has taken a keen interest in promoting Colorado's crypto-friendly environment, including by launching a program in September under which Coloradans can pay for state taxes using crypto. But that crypto scene doesn't necessarily hit Pueblo. I know the Denver area is probably going to be the best spot for cryptocurrency. We don't really have a whole lot on the southern end of the state, Matarachi says. 
I'm going to start doing some booths at local events to try to just educate people about it. I'm actually doing a booth this weekend here in Pueblo at a local nerd convention. Cryptocurrencies have dropped significantly in value over the last year. The technology behind cryptocurrencies is extremely powerful and has incredible potential. But the high volatility of the currencies and the recent collapse of the FTX crypto trading company and the indictment of its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, have left crypto critics with plenty of material to lob at crypto promoters. I've been picked victims of rug pulls with people testing out their projects, says Matarochi. That's kind of when I fell in love with the idea of community-run projects. I found them safer. Right now, ClownCoin is available for purchase on PancakeSwap, a crypto trading platform. Matarochi notes that when ClownCoin launched, the initial investors put in $300 to create one quadrillion clown coin. The market cap for the meme coin ended up jumping to $50,000 on the first day and has hit a high of $70,000. Right now, clown coin's market cap is floating around $20,000. And that's, of course, due to the real bad bear market at the moment, according to Matarochi. That means that just $20 could instantly turn an investor into a clown coin trillionaire. Although meme coins are often without meaningful monetary value, occasionally such cryptocurrencies go gangbusters. In fact, in mid-2021, Dogecoin hit a market cap high of $88.8 billion. If we reached a billion-dollar market cap, each trillion is worth a billion dollars, Matarochi says. Denver opens Coliseum as warming center for homeless by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. Facing sub-zero temperatures, the city of Denver opened the Denver Coliseum at 3 p.m. yesterday, December 21st, as a 24 by 7 warming center for the next few days. This facility will be available to anyone who needs it, Mayor Michael Hancock said during a press conference in the city's emergency operations center. Everyone is welcome. The opening of the Coliseum as a temporary warming facility with capacity for 225 guests comes as Denver struggles to manage both the Arctic weather and the continuing large number of migrant arrivals. Hancock issued an emergency declaration about the migrant crisis on December 15th. There will come a time, I hope, where people will understand we're just like in anything, we have finite resources and we have to make a call about the resources that we have available to us, Hancock said, noting that he's been in touch with other mayors from across the country, and that cities like Chicago, New York, and Minneapolis are going through a similar struggle with the arrival of migrants. New York has seen nearly 32,000 migrants during this recent increase, a figure that might become exacerbated by the looming end of Title 42, a pandemic-era rule that has allowed U.S. immigration authorities to have more power to deny entry to migrants. As of December 21st, 1,321 migrants, most of whom are Spanish-speaking, including some from Venezuela, had arrived in Denver after coming up from border states like Texas. Even prior to the sub-zero weather, which the National Weather Service warned could reach a wind chill of 50 below zero, the Hancock administration had transformed two Denver recreation centers into emergency shelters for migrants and a third recreation center into a reception center as a first stop for those arriving by bus at Union Station. 
Denver also applied for $1.5 million of reimbursement from the state of Colorado, which is now offering money to municipalities and counties that are dealing with the increased arrival of migrants. We anticipate applying for additional federal reimbursement in the coming weeks, said Hancock, who noted that he's had conversations with the White House about this recent migrant crisis. Buses will pick up individuals who are interested in staying at the Coliseum from outside the Denver Rescue Mission at 2222 Lawrence Street. People walking up to the Coliseum and those getting dropped off will also be allowed in. One important note is that the city will only allow registered service animals into the shelter, but not pets. Those with pets who come to the shelter will be able to hand their animals off to a Denver Animal Protection Officer at the Coliseum. The pets will be temporarily housed in the Denver Animal Shelter. The city plans to keep the Coliseum open as a shelter through at least Saturday morning. Then we'll see how the weather pattern changes or evolves, said Britta Fisher, the executive director of the Department of Housing Stability. Denver recreation centers and libraries will also open as warming centers during regular operating hours. Advocates for people experiencing homelessness have questioned whether the city of Denver will sweep encampments during the dangerous weather. According to the Joint Information Center, the crisis communication center that the city reopened as the migrant arrival started to overwhelm the city, we will be watching the weather carefully and adjust as needed. All cleanup activities on Thursday have been delayed. Depending on conditions, trash pickup may resume on Friday, but individuals experiencing homelessness will not be asked to move by cleanup crews. All teams involved will be notifying individuals in these encampments of the incoming cold and offering to connect them to shelter. According to Fisher, three dozen city staffers are working extended hours until 9 p.m. each day to help get people staying on the streets inside as the Arctic weather descends upon Denver on the shortest day of the year and longest night of the year. If the Coliseum hits capacity, Fisher noted that the city and its partners have plans to overflow to an additional location. The sub-zero temperatures in Denver came at a solemn time for homeless individuals and advocates who held a vigil outside the city and county building from 5 to 7 p.m. on December 21st for the more than 260 people experiencing homelessness who died in Denver over the past year. Some of those people died from exposure to the elements. It's a reminder of how important our efforts are to encourage everyone to come inside, Fisher said. Denver is still seeking help in sheltering the recently arrived migrants. The city is hiring short-term shelter assistance. And the people of Denver have been generous so far, according to Hancock. Donations of all kinds have been pouring in. It has absolutely been an incredible thing to watch, he said. Environmental Groups to Air Quality Control Commission Ozone Plan Misses the Mark by Katie Cheshire After a four-day rulemaking process, the Air Quality Control Commission approved a new state implementation plan to reduce Colorado's ozone pollution. The plan had been prompted by an April decision by the Environmental Protection Agency to downgrade the status of the Northern Front Range from a serious violator of federal ozone standards to a severe violator. The reason? The area failed to bring ozone levels below the EPA's 75 parts per billion National Ambient Air Quality Standard, which the agency established in 2008. Environmental groups and local governments have long contended that the plan, 
which the Regional Air Quality Council voted to send to the AQCC in August, needed to include more measures to get ozone pollution under control, such as increasing access to public transportation, limiting high-emitting oil and gas activities during ozone season, and adding emission standards for lawn and garden equipment. The AQCC approved the plan without those additions on December 16th. The bottom line is the state is failing to make a plan that will actually meet air quality standards, says Kirsten Schatz, a clean air advocate with the Colorado Public Interest Research Group. It's a big missed opportunity. The plan just totally misses the mark. It's not going to get the job done. It's not going to cut harmful ozone pollution. Ozone is a secondary pollutant that forms when other pollutants, primarily volatile organic compounds and nitrogen oxide, mix with heat and sun. It can aggravate lung conditions such as asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases. It's also particularly dangerous for young children and adults over 65. Denver ranks 7th on the American Lung Association's list of most polluted cities for ozone in 2022. The Northern Front Range also does not comply with the EPA's new standard of 70 parts per billion, adopted, adopted in 2015, for which the AQCC passed a similar plan on December 16th. This is a serious, serious public health problem, and we need serious solutions, Schatz says. It's been a little frustrating to feel like the actions taken so far, they're just not up to the task of the problem at hand. New solutions may be considered in 2023 thanks to language adopted by the AQCC as part of the plan's expectations that regional and state officials will evaluate strategies to reduce ozone in precursor sectors like oil and gas, transportation, and others. That language is non-binding, however, so although environmental advocates are glad for the acknowledgement, it doesn't assuage their concerns. This is where they should have been years ago, notes Jacob Smith, executive director of Colorado Communities for Climate Action, a coalition of 40 local governments advocating for stronger climate policy. It's disappointing that they adopted a plan that they know will fail and that they know is inadequate and didn't adopt any additional steps that they could have that would make a real difference now. The plan not only states that it won't reach compliance with the 2015 standard by the 2024 deadline, but also that the ozone problem was worse than originally thought when the RAQC sent the plan to the AQCC. According to a November 11th temporary notice of withdrawal submitted by the Air Pollution Control Division to the AQCC, emissions inventories that account for volatile organic compounds and nitrogen oxides were calculated incorrectly for the oil and gas industry in the non-attainment area, which accounted for new drilling in 2017 rather than total operative oil wells. The discrepancy was discovered by a coalition of local governments, including Colorado Communities for Climate Action. All of our residents, including myself, miss days of work, or children miss school days, and we're increasing the burden on our health care system. J.J. Trout, Golden City Councilor and Mayor Pro Tem said during public comment, My residents expect us to do the hard work to protect our communities and their health. To adopt a plan that everyone agrees will not meet our goals, it's just irresponsible. Trout added that, 
Although she is sympathetic to concerns expressed by those in the oil and gas industry about the economic impact of ozone controls, the extent of ozone pollution is too high to ignore. Local officials like Trout, Smith notes, have been more motivated to fix the ozone problem because of their connection to communities experiencing the health impacts of bad air. The political cost of angering industry groups that prevents bold action at the state level isn't as impactful to them as stories that they hear from their constituents. Yet the AQCC did attempt bold action when it came to skirting the Clean Air Act, approving the plan without a requirement to switch to reformulated gasoline by 2024, thanks to an amendment proposed by Governor Jared Polis's administration that asks for extra investigation into the federally mandated requirement to add reformulated gasoline when an area is downgraded to severe non-attainment. Reformulated gasoline causes fewer tailpipe emissions than traditional gasoline. Estimates of the cost vary, however, with some claiming it could be as low as a 20% increase per gallon and others claiming it could be over 50 cents per gallon. The Polis administration called for further examination of the efficacy of reformulated gas to bring down ozone levels compared to its potential cost to customers before including it in the plan. While there is 30-year-old language in the Clean Air Act that certainly implies that areas under a severe designation will be required to use formulated gasoline, it really isn't clear that it makes sense from a cost-benefit perspective. Will Tour of the Colorado Energy Office said at an August RAQC meeting. The EPA will now review the plan, and the RAQC will hold a stakeholder process in 2023 to gain input on further iterations of the state's ozone plans. But some advocates are hoping Coloradans won't have to wait for more action, calling for the legislature and other state leaders to act quickly to implement ozone control measures. We have so many ways that we know of on the table to cut ozone pollution, Schott says. Smith Smith gives the example of pausing high-emitting pre-production activity for drilling during ozone season in the summer as something the legislature could do to significantly reduce ozone. The state has mostly said, yeah, we know it's a problem, we're going to try and do stuff. But then when it comes time to actually adopt the things that they're going to make the biggest difference, they only go halfway, he says. The result is we're still in crisis. In fact, the crisis is worse. So it's time for the state to really step up and treat it like the crisis it is and take those real health harms to people all over the front range as seriously as they deserve. How to Get Your Pipes Ready for Denver's Freezing Temps by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh As Denver prepares to descend into an apocalyptic Arctic frozen tundra, one of the biggest concerns for folks in the metro area will be how to protect pipes at home from freezing especially if they're heading out of town for the holidays. Frigid weather, Denver and other parts of Colorado may see a wind chill of 50 below zero this week, can lead to a burst pipe, which can be an expensive disaster for a homeowner. But there are experts out there who know how to defend against burst burst pipes, like Michael Britton, owner of Professional Plumbers Denver, who spoke with Westward about prevention tips and how to handle pipes that do burst. Before even the freeze, homeowners need to locate where the main shutoff valve for the house is, Britton says as he's driving to Boulder to insulate pipes in the lead-up to the looming cold weather. Even if the kid is alone in the house, 
he needs to know where the shutoff valve is. Aside from knowing how to shut off the water supply, homeowners should also make sure the valve is working. Britton notes that a little WD-40 can help do the trick to ensure that the valve moves. After that, those who are staying in Denver for the holidays will need to figure out where the pipes in their home are exposed, such as in a basement, garage, or attic. For example, if the copper pipes are in the crawl space and the crawl space is not protected, and there are uninsulated copper pipes with these kind of temperatures, the pipes will most likely burst, Britton says. One method for warming up a crawl space would be to place a heater in it, according to Britton, but that's more of a stopgap solution. The best solution is to insulate the pipes, which homeowners can do by purchasing insulation from a store like Home Depot and installing it themselves. Another option is to get a plumber to install commercial-grade insulation, which Britain notes is of the most protective quality. Asked if there is any MacGyver-type solution for fixing pipes when homeowners are scrambling, Britain is unable to come up with one. They need to go to Home Depot right now. If homeowners are truly unable to get insulation in time, they should turn on the faucets in the house and leave the water dripping, according to Britain. A lot of people won't do it because it'll drive them crazy, Britton says, noting that it's still worth the irritation since the steadily dripping water can help prevent a burst pipe. Those who are leaving Denver for holiday vacations and are concerned about pipes bursting should, t- should turn off the water supply from the street outside their homes, then open the faucets to flush out all the remaining water before you go. In addition, leave the thermostat at 65 or higher if you can afford it. That should prevent any pipe bursting, Britton says. But if the nightmare scenario of a pipe bursting does happen, a homeowner should right away shut off the water for the house and then call a plumber, he adds. Although he wishes it weren't the case, Britton expects to receive a lot of calls in the coming days for burst pipes, many of which will happen after the initial frozen water thaws, causing the actual burst. I'm expecting a crazy, crazy day with pipe bursts, he says. Bill requiring cage-free compliance for all eggs sold in Colorado goes into effect January 1st by Helen Chu. Hens are about to get a little more breathing room. On January 1st, 2023, the first phase of HB 20-1343, a bill titled Egg-Laying Hen Confinement Standards, will go into effect requiring producers of all eggs sold in Colorado to provide at least one square foot per hen. The second phase of the bill will expand that required space to either one square foot per hen with unlimited vertical access or one and a half square feet per hen in order to qualify eggs as cage-free. Producers will phase into fully cage-free by 2025. The bill began back in 2019 when Colorado Representative, now Senator-elect, Dylan Roberts and Senator Kerry Donovan, who both sat on agriculture committees, heard rumors of an impending cage-free egg ballot initiative. This bill came from the industry wanting to work out laws codifying what was largely already in place for them as folks who work with hens, Donovan explains. We wanted to head off a ballot initiative that didn't come from the agricultural community. The play was successful, with a handshake agreement of the would-be sponsors of the ballot initiative killing it.
egg producers, represented by the membership organization Colorado Egg Producers, were involved in the process from the very beginning. They could read the writing on the wall. For years, there's been a national trend to move toward cage-free eggs. Starting in 2016, almost all major U.S. supermarket chains, including Kroger, Safeway, Costco, Walmart, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, and Publix, committed to going cage-free in the next decade. In 2021, Yum! Brands, the parent company of Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut, pledged to use only cage-free eggs by 2030. In September of 2021, Amazon Fresh announced that its entire selection of eggs in the United States are cage-free. Our producers knew it was a trend, says Bill Skebby, director of Colorado Egg Producers. If our legislators, if our consumers want eggs like that, our producers will accommodate. We worked with the legislators on how to do it best. That's why we advocated for phases. Governor Jared Polis signed the bill into law in July of 2020, with the first enactment date scheduled for 2023. Even with a two-and-a-half-year gap, Mark Gallegos and his team couldn't rest. Gallegos is director of the Colorado Department of Agriculture's CDA, Inspection and Consumer Services Division, so it's his team that needs to draw up plans and implement enforcement for this wide-reaching regulation. The division started outreach with industry groups, hosting town halls and working at the state and national egg association levels to reach consensus. It landed on leaning on third-party auditors to carry out the bulk of the enforcement work. Egg producers are responsible for hiring CDA-approved auditors to visit the site and ensure compliance with the state space requirements for the hens. That way, when the egg producer submits an application to Gallegos' team, it should include the independent audit docu documentation, allowing for an easier approval process. Eventually, Gallegos hopes to set up an online database where both the public and the industry can review certificates of compliance documentation. But right now, he can't think about the future. With less than 10 days to go until the January 1st deadline, his team is racing to get through all the applications. Over a thousand farms across the nation have applied to be approved, Gallegos says. They're coming in daily right now. It's an improvement for the hens, but what about for the consumer? Skebby points out that this bill is only one of the factors behind an increase in the cost of eggs. Egg producers are facing the same things that have increased costs for all other commodities. Feed costs, transportation costs, housing costs. Those costs have all gone up, Skebby says. And now we'll need to restructure our farms on top of that. That statement is contrary to the CDA's press release about the bill, which says, Already, 100% of Colorado commercial egg farms, as well as several out-of-state farms, are already certified compliant by Colorado. Theoretically, this should mean that there would be no increased costs for egg producers to become compliant. I'm really disappointed that the egg industry is out there saying that in the media, Donovan says. When we were writing the law, the egg producers promised us that this does not increase the cost of the eggs. Skebby says Donovan is missing the nuances. I believe all of our farms before this bill had only one or two cage-free barns, 
So some eggs were produced in barns that had cage-free environments. Some had conventional environments, Skibby explains. To go entirely cage-free requires a conversion in the production of eggs on a commercial basis. All the equipment and housing need to be replaced. Cage-free eggs are more labor-intensive to produce. Eggs will cost more. A more daunting factor behind more expensive eggs is the recent impact of the avian flu. In Colorado, Skebby estimates the influenza wiped out 85% or 5.1 million hens. Colorado egg producers not only had to replace their spot stock and disinfect their farms, but also source eggs from around the country to serve Colorado's demand, an option that will become harder as the passage of this bill narrows the pool of Colorado-eligible egg producers. However, there's one thing both sides can agree on. The quality of eggs is very high. The supply is here. We're working hard to make sure Coloradans have eggs on their shelf through the hard work of the egg producers and the Department of Agriculture, Skebby notes. Colorado egg producers have been great stewards and responsible producers, Gallegos agrees. This bill highlights our really, really great egg producers that care about their flock and their animals. Molina Speaks is blowing minds with his free immersive album experience by Emily Ferguson. The pandemic was a telekinetic portal, a costly one, says Denver artist Molina Speaks. As we exited, I was like, we have an opportunity to reimagine everything. We had the time, the solitude, the knowledge, the power, the leverage to demand new social, cultural, and economic realities. For the most part, it's back to business as usual. But we are still in a period of social upheaval and possibility. We can redesign this entire reality and our impact on the planet, if we choose to. Molina made his choice. And now he's taking us on a journey to a more enlightened consciousness with his installation at Understudy, Dreams, Life, and Time's Immersive Album Experience. Although it's been decades since listening to records from front to back was considered a regular communal activity, unless you're a hipster, that's the experience I wanted to bring back, he says, explaining that he was exhausted and frustrated from putting out music that is old news the next day. Instead, the music and spoken word poetry of his Dreams, Life, and Times album will disappear altogether when the installation closes on December 31st, at least until Molina finds another place to present it. I don't know if that experience of walking into the record store and unwrapping a package is coming back, but there are future ways to bring that vibe, like the physical experience of an album, he says. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to create a world where you can just come in and you want to spend some time and you could sink into the music, away from the chaos of the city. Everything is so fast-paced, but here in the heart of the city, you can just come and zone out. During a weekday after-work rush, people are hurrying to catch the light rail at Stout Street while cars jam up on 14th Street on the homebound commute passing by the cool blue lights and muffled bump of music coming from understudy. But once you enter this space tucked into the Colorado Convention Center, the outer world disappears as you become entranced by a physical illustration of Molina's album, years in the making, and the dreamscapes it embodies. 
The atmosphere is cozy. Plush rugs cover the floor. Plants hang from the ceiling. Yoga mats invite stretching, and Picasso tiles invite play. There's a cabinet with paper and markers for drawing, magazines and scissors for collage. In the corner are a hot water heater and tea bags. And, of course, there are plenty of comfortable couches and chairs for watching Molina's album come to life on a television screen and in the projection above it, with digital renderings by the artist Fanny Pack. It invites people into a musical experience in a way that I think people are hungry for right now, Molina says of his installation. You know, the attention economy is so draining. Even in your own phone, how many photos or videos that you've taken do you ever actually return to? It's just overload. But here, you can just come vibe. I imagine that there will be other spaces where this album pops up around the city or around the country. I want to keep this Dreamscapes lounge going. There will be different iterations of it. But again, with this first one, I just want to make it as comfortable as possible to just come in and just be. When he began making Dreams, Life, and Times during the pandemic, Molina had no idea that it would result in an immersive installation. In fact, he says he started with no concept for it at all. But every time he shared snippets of his music with friends or collaborators, a greater intention began forming and expanding. One of those friends was the late artist and activist Steven Lucero, with whom Molina painted the indigenous futurist Dreamscapes Lounge at Meow Wolf's Convergence Station. It's evolved a lot, and this was during the time that I was deep into an experience with my dreams. I was working on the Dreamscapes Lounge project in Meow Wolf with Stephen Lucero, and we were talking a lot about consciousness and dreams, he recalls. Lucero's influence didn't end there. Molina brought a sketch of the artist, which became the album's cover. Meanwhile, the sound was coming together like a stream of consciousness, he says, leading to a set of dreamscapes. Molina, a prolific artist, poet, musician, and activist whose work earned him a Westward Mastermind Award in 2017, says he let go of more control on this album than he ever had before, handing over 100 minutes of material to longtime collaborator DJ Icewater to mix it into the 45 minutes of smooth hip-hop and spoken word. He emphasizes that the project wouldn't have come to fruition without his collaborators, including Edwina Mabel, who provides vocals on one track, and whom Molina mentored at Youth on Record while she was in a fellowship program. The album also features spoken word poetry from Ramon Gabriel of Parrish, Afrofuturist professor at Naropa University and his wife, Michelle. I recorded their poems at my home in December of 2020, Molina says. DJ Icewater paired his poem with a beat by Felix Fast Forward as an intro to the track Museo, though, as you heard, everything kind of runs together as cascades of questions, visions, and dreams. The result, he says, is his best album to date. It's an invitation to dream. It's an invitation to explore consciousness and really to get to decide what kind of dream you want to live, he explains. We're living in the dreamscapes of all these different characters, the politicians, the authoritarians, the polarized realities of race and politics, all these different religions that come before us. There are these different influences. There are the worlds of money and fame. There are the clubs. There are all the commercials on TV. 
There are all these dreams that are already laid out, right? But what is your dream of reality? I think a key lyric in this album is, you got a chance to fulfill a dream. What would you fill with your time? You got a chance to fulfill a dream. What would you fill with your space? The lyrics and poetry position Molina as the Alan Watts of his generation. And similar to what Watts does in The Dream of Life, Molina asks us to confront not just duality, that the existence of love also means the existence of pain, that there is both good and evil, but all that exists in between. It's in that space, he says, that we can find a balance that begets action, more aligned with consciousness, rather than raw emotion or passion. By the end of the album, you will feel rejuvenated and refreshed, and will likely want to stay for another listen. But you may be worried when Madame Esquire Etchell says that this is Molina's final album. I'm always going to make music, and I'm always going to be an MC, Molina clarifies. Hip-hop got into my heart as a teen and kept me alive and moving through many lives. It's not always going to be a spectacle for public consumption. Even so, the public turnout for Dreams, Life, and Times has been gratifying, he says, sharing a moment that emphasized the message of the immersive experience. It was the evening of the Parade of Lights, and two very different groups came in. One consisted of college-age kids who wanted to turn up the music and were taking TikTok and Instagram videos. The other group was made up of younger teenagers who were happy with mellowing out to the music and playing with the Picasso tiles. To me... All of that's relevant, Molina says. However you experience this, if it, if it affirms you, then good. That's what it's for. Dreams, Life, and Time's immersive album experience, 1 to 7 p.m. daily through December 31st, understudy, 890C 14th Street. Admission is free. Join Molina Speaks at understudy for a winter solstice artist talk from 7 to 9 p.m. on Tuesday, December 27th. Urban Peak Starting Construction on New Homeless Youth Shelter by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. Urban Peak, a longtime service provider for homeless youth in Denver, will soon begin construction on a new shelter that will allow the organization to significantly expand its services. It's just a really innovative campus, says Christina Carlson, the CEO of Urban Peak. Having space that has lots of light and visibility and is welcoming, and not just big massive dorms, I think will make such a big difference. The shelter, which will be constructed at the site of the soon-to-be-demolished old Urban Peak building at 1630 South Acoma Street, will increase the facility's bed count from 40 to 136 beds. Right now, Urban Peak is using its drop-in center at 2100 Stout Street as a temporary shelter with just 36 beds. The thing that'll be very cool, Carlson says, is that at the Mothership, her nickname for the shelter project, we'll be able to provide daytime and overnight services to our full age range. From July 2020 through June 2021, the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative tracked 954 people under the age of 25 accessing services related to homelessness. Carlson describes the new shelter as one that will have smaller dorms, with the most number of beds that will be in one dorm at 8. The shelter will serve youth between the ages of 15 and 24, which will mark a major difference from the age range that Urban Peak, which was founded in 1988, currently serves in shelter settings. At the shelter, because we had minors in shared space, 
we could only shelter somebody up to their 21st birthday. So to be able to have the older youth stay with us 24 by 7 or overnight is a big deal, Carlson says. We have lots of 21 to 24-year-olds that we see at our drop-in center who want to stay with us but end up going to an adult shelter or, honestly, end up camping because they don't want to go to an adult shelter. Youth under the age of 18 will stay in a separate area in the new shelter, which will also have shared community space, laundry, living and dining areas, a medical clinic, a classroom, a visual arts center, and a tech lab. There will also be case management on site. So it's much more comprehensive and full wraparound services at one site, notes Carlson. It's very exciting. Very, very exciting. Over the course of fiscal year 2022, Urban Peak served 903 youth, including 176 individuals that it housed through the organization's housing programs, and 260 individuals stayed in Urban Peak's shelter at some point that year. With construction for the project set to start in January, Urban Peak predicts the shelter will be ready to go by the end of 2024. The 60,000 square foot building costs $38.6 million, and its construction involves a complex array of funding mechanisms. Urban Peak has raised about $4 million in private philanthropy for the project, The organization also expects around $11 million in new market tax credits. The state of Colorado is putting in over $3.7 million, while Congressman Diana DeGette, a Democrat who represents Denver, secured $3 million in funding for the project. This is a big day for our community, DeGette said in March after the funding had been secured. All of our private and government partners are really stepping up by being like, We need to do something really innovative and interesting and meet the needs, Carlson says. Additionally, on December 20th, the Denver City Council Finance and Governance Committee will vote on providing over $16.7 million in bond money to the project, thanks to a series of bond measures that Denver voters approved in 2021 known as Rise Denver. The full city council will vote on the item in January. Housing and homelessness are top issues facing our community, which is why we're leveraging Rise Denver bond revenue to provide social infrastructure for residents, says Derek Woodbury, a spokesperson for the Denver Department of Housing Stability. This project will significantly increase shelter capacity for youth experiencing homelessness, transforming the lives of many with stabilizing services and connections to housing. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.